This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Boyd Matheson, the opinion editor of the Deseret News. The former chief of staff to Senator Mike Lee and the former president of the Sutherland Institute, Boyd Matheson is now the opinion editor of the Deseret News, which is based in Salt Lake City, and has come to the rabbi's husband to discuss the awesome passage of 1 Samuel 17:48. Boyd, welcome to the rabbi's husband. Hey, it is great to be with you today, Martin. Well, thank you. So uh, tell us what happens in uh, 1 Samuel 17, 48, and why is it significant to you? So I think the interesting thing, many of us are familiar, of course, with the story of David and Goliath. And uh, we usually, uh, like most things biblical, we just jump to the the happy ending, (laughs) the great victory, the overcoming. And often in that process, we miss uh, some really important lessons along the way. And I I read this passage, uh, I remember very clearly, Peter gave this passage to me. I was 17 years old. And the focus of this is what happens just before the battle. And so the focus of the passage is, and David ran. David ran to meet Goliath. Think of that. No sword, no shield. Uh, he's got five stones and a, and a sling, and he is running. And he ran quickly. <laughs> yes, he hasted. He hasted and ran towards Goliath. And uh, I have used that as a model ever since. Because it was a, obviously that was a, a bit audacious to be <laughs> running towards Goliath, but he could do that because he had confidence. And to me, confidence is never arrogance. Real confidence, true confidence is often a, a quiet thing. True confidence comes when you have respect for the challenge, when you're ready for the task, when you've got a plan, when you're determined to persevere no matter what comes. And then you can, we can run towards our challenges, whether those are personal challenges, whether those are community challenges, whether those are our country challenges, we can have that kind of confidence. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful interpretation. And it reminds me of the biblical idea of humility, where God kind of breaks from his normal state in the Torah of revealing what happened, letting us come to our own conclusions. And instead he says, Moses, he's the most humble man to ever live. Just states it, which is very rare. And then you think the most humble man to ever live This is the guy who argues with God several times, particularly at the golden calf when God says, to hell with them, I'm going to start over with just you. And Moses argues, and Moses says to God, if you want to get rid of them, blot me out of your Torah, which is perhaps the most audacious statement anyone ever made. And yet the man who has the temerity and the confidence, in your words, to argue with God is simultaneously called the most humble man to ever live which is what I was thinking about when you suggested this passage and said that this reveals the distinction between confidence and arrogance. It's, it's, it's such an interesting distinction. So how is Moses the most humble man? It's not because he lacks confidence. He has plenty of confidence. Yeah, that's right. The most meek, like Moses, understand that, that it is this quiet confidence that sometimes to the world looks uh, old and audacious and even a little crazy sometimes. But there is something to that, and it's something that we really lack in the world today. If there was a real crisis around the world, it's a crisis of confidence. People have lost confidence in themselves. They've lost confidence in God. They've lost confidence in their fellow man, in the country. 
And, and that's what we need. But again, it doesn't come by, you know, beating your chest and declaring you're the most awesome or the, the greatest of all time or whatever it may be. It comes from doing the hard work and heavy lifting that, uh, that happens in our homes and it happens in our communities. Right. And you can simultaneously have lots of confidence and no arrogance, which is what your passage shows. David wasn't an arrogant guy at all. I mean, the most beautiful piece of literature ever written just might be Psalm 23. The man was not arrogant. He had an incredible relationship with God, and it wasn't about himself at all. And similarly, Moses showed that you can at once be humble and totally bold. And I think the commonality is you just have to sublimate yourself to God. So you can be confident, you can be bold, but you just have to be both under God. We have a rule at my house. I have five kids. The rule at my house is if you have to declare it, you're not it. <laughs> uh, so usually that comes in the form of my children. When my children say, hey, I can do this. I'm an adult now. It's usually because they're about to do something very childish. Uh, if you have to declare yourself as awesome, if you have to declare yourself as the leader, you're not the leader. If you have to declare that you're going to be the hero, you can't be the hero. Uh, it's just not how it works because you have to have, there is power and strength and energy in that meekness, that humility that you just described, the very thing that gave David the ability to run, to hasten and run towards the biggest challenge he would ever face. And in, in the Jewish notion, in, in the Torah notion, false humility is a sin. Because if you're falsely humble, you don't acknowledge the gifts that God has given you. And if you don't acknowledge the gifts that God's given you, you can't improve the world with them. And that's a sin. And I think you're saying the same thing about confidence. That, yeah, that's right. False confidence is, is equally a sin, <laughs> yeah, in my view, because it means you're representing something that you are not. It comes from within. It comes with your relationship with God. You have to be it. Yes, that's right. And you have to exude, you have to share it. It's much like, you know, as we uh, launched into, into Hanukkah uh, yesterday, and we actually did that at my house, I want you to know. Uh, we had a, a great dinner. My, uh, my wife uh, pulled it off in amazing fashion. But one of the things that I love is the idea that the menorah, the light has to go outside. It's not enough just to have the light of the Torah in your own home, in your own family. You have to take it into the marketplace. You have to take it into the public square. And so when you have that confidence, it is your responsibility to infuse it and share it with others. Uh, I actually literally got up this morning and, and wrote my column for this week. And I, I chose as the theme, you know, as we started Hanukkah, to focus on what I call the light kindlers. <laughs> I was in New York a few years ago, got to hear uh, Rabbi Soloviechek uh, give an inspiring address about the soul of man is the candle of God and how it isn't enough to keep that inside. You have to take it out. And, and I just love that. That really has moved me and been a, a great marching order for me because every one of us at some point in our life, we're going to lose that confidence. Uh, and usually, amazingly, often we lose that confidence because we've also lost that meekness and humility. And usually it's through another person that that light, that confidence is rekindled. And uh, just think of all the, the light kindlers in your life. Your flame was running really low, brushed up against you, either in word or in action or in their belief and their confidence in you. We all should be thankful for those light killers because that's uh, the source for many of us. I know for me, uh, a lot of my confidence came from really tough moments when I was really empty, when my light was maybe even all the way out and somebody had confidence in me. They showed that confidence. They shared that confidence in me and it transformed me in significant ways. That's beautiful. And, and 
speaking about the Hanukkah menorah you just brought up, the, the Hanukkah menorah, the candle that's elevated above the highest is is called the shamash. That means the servant. So it's the servant candle. And what does it do? It lights all the others. That's what the lead candle does. The lead candle is a servant and he exercises, it exercises its leadership in the case of the menorah and the candle by lighting all the others, which shows that's what a real leader does. A real leader lights all the others. And light is one of the few things in the world that to the extent you give it, you increase it. That's so powerful. I had a great blessing. One of the great blessings of 2020 for me was I had the opportunity to do an interview, to do a podcast uh, with Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs before it was just shortly before he passed away. And he talked about that very notion, that kind of influence, that kind of confidence is so different from everything else. We normally think of power uh, and confidence as a zero sum game. If you have more, I have less. But that light, that confidence, that impact and influence, every time you share it, you actually have more. And so we should have that in our individual lives, in our businesses, our communities. Uh, If we started to have this confidence mentality that there's enough and to spare, and that every time that I share, I have more, that's transformational. You want to transform a community or a country? Start thinking in those terms. The more you share that servant leadership you just described uh, is exactly what we're desperate for. That's exactly right. And, and we can also think about what are the other things in the world that we get more of to the extent we share. And I can think of two others, one of which is knowledge. If you share your knowledge, if you teach somebody, it's not like you forgot what you just taught the person. You've just, in the very least, you've increased knowledge in the world and you might've learned something in exchange. In the very least, you increase knowledge in what you imparted, but you probably got something back too. And also the Torah in Deuteronomy makes a very interesting guarantee. It says that if you give to help the poor, you will be blessed. Every blessing in the Torah is a material blessing. In other words, saying if you give to help the poor, you're going to do better financially. Yeah. Oh, no question. In fact, uh, it was just going over in Malachi, you know, talking about uh, giving the law of tithing. I mean, I, I think uh, God had me in mind when he created that law because one, he knew I'd be really bad at math. So, you know, just give. And he also knew that I wasn't very smart. So he put it all in a single verse. I mean, you think of our tax code and how complicated thousands and tens of thousands of pages, he put it all into a single verse. But the thing I love the most is this law of tithes and offering. There's no thou shalt or thou shalt not. Instead, it's kind of, uh, I always say it's God's version of a triple dog there. <laughs> it says, prove me now herewith and I'll open the windows of heaven. And so prove me. Uh, and I and I just love that that simplicity of it is so absolutely true. The more we give, the more confidence we can have in everything that we do, because it definitely comes back around. Where do you think David got his confidence from in this passage? So he's he's a young man at the time, the youngest child in an era where primogeniture was still a very important idea. Now the Bible constantly subverts primogeniture as the legitimate order of things, but. It subverts it because it existed. If it didn't exist, it wouldn't have to bother subverting it so often. So, you know, in comes this, this uh, young man who has the confidence, as you so magnificently interpret the passage, to take on the toughest guy in the world. Yeah, I think part of that comes from family. And even though he was the youngest, uh, he had learned something really important, I think, and that is that he was quick to observe. I think it's another important source of confidence live in this world where we're constantly skimming across the surface. We're only reading headlines. We're only in our own little bubbles. We only hear what we want to hear. Uh, I think one of the things that David learned from a large family (laughs) is how to be quick to observe. 
that's been a blessing for me, by the way. I come from a family of 11 children. I'm number eight. I have seven, seven sisters. I learned a lot from that. One of them just getting up early so you can have a hot shower. We'll save that discussion for, uh, for another day. But there is something about family that I think was helpful to David in terms of learning this critical skill of being quick to observe and then quick to act. If, if you go through and look at the passages, uh, he didn't spend a lot of time hesitating and vacillating and should I, shouldn't I, maybe uh, I could try this. When he saw something, he did something. So he was quick to observe and quick to act, which reinforces our confidence in principle, in the principle of right and wrong, in the principle, you know, all of those things. Uh, David was very quick to observe those. And of course, being in a large family like that, he could observe both the good and the bad implications of that from his siblings. And then he, you know, made his adjustments as he, as he went. And so I think those kinds of things are uh, a source of that confidence and the kind of conversations that you end up having, again, in the, in the context of family, uh, I think is also it's so important. I see so many young people today who have no confidence. And a lot of that is because they aren't having crucial conversations at home. As I mentioned, I, I come from a family of 11 kids. I'll, I'll tell you, one of the greatest sources of my confidence comes from a very simple thing that we did at my house every Saturday night. Saturday night, five o'clock, all 11 kids were expected to be at home, regardless of dates or whatever else you were doing. It's your Shabbat. Yeah, exactly. We sat around the table uh, and ours was a little different because my dad made pancakes. <laughs> now, Mark, I don't know if you've had pancakes in a large group before. They do not come in stacks. <laughs> we, uh, we always had the joke at my house that eating pancakes with the Mathesons was like the early stages of labor pain. You'd get them one at a time and about 10 minutes apart. And yet it was during that time we were waiting for those precious pancakes to come our way that my parents were teaching us. Uh, more importantly, they were listening to us. They were asking questions and listening. And uh, again, I think David benefited from that big family, that Shabbat experience of having important conversations with important people in your life. And we need more of that in the world today, not less. That's fascinating. So every Saturday at five o'clock, you and your 10 siblings would gather for pancakes. And this was kind of your time of the week to be together and to reflect. Yeah, that's right. Wow. And David came from a almost equally large family, not quite 11, but but he, he probably had a similar kind of experience. Fascinating. You mentioned before that you kind of celebrate, you did celebrate Hanukkah last night. How did you develop this apparent love for Judaism that you as a Christian would celebrate our holiday? I have holy envy for uh, a lot of things in the, in the Jewish tradition. There are so many things that, again, are confidence producing and inspiring. And I, I, I have been so blessed to be able to interact with just some extraordinary members of the Jewish community in different stages and phases of my life. But every one of them has made me a better person. Obviously, the connection to the Old Testament and what's in the Torah, that's always had great power to me, even when I was young. I'm no scholar. I am no scriptorian by any stretch of the imagination. But there is power in that word and in those traditions. And uh, because of that, I, uh, I continue to engage when I was a chief of staff in Washington. I uh, spent a lot of time dealing with uh, things relating uh, to Israel and, and uh, was always a part of APAC gatherings and uh, just developed so many wonderful friendships with members of the Jewish faith that uh, they all impact me. And it's one of those things that, again, there's some, there's some shared sacrifice. There's some shared commitment, some shared principles and values for sure. And there's strength in that. Uh, you talk about another reason for confidence, knowing who's with you 
will give you a lot of confidence. When you know God's with you, that's ultimate confidence. But knowing you have friends around you also gives you that confidence. I think that's a really profound point. I mean, I, I think we are now living in a world historic moment of Jewish Christian, not tolerance at all. We had tolerance 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Now we have love. And I think it's world historic because we've been around for, who knows, five or 6,000 years. We have never had friends like we have among the Christian community in the last 20 years. I mean, you can almost date it. Now, obviously it didn't like turn on a, a switch, but like all things in life, it evolves, but it's about 20 years old, what it is now. And it's, it's world historic that you would be celebrating Hanukkah. I mean, I get, everyone's on the email list, gets emails from CBN. I have learned about the existence of Jewish holidays, about which I was unaware from Christian Broadcast Network sending out emails to all of their supporters and constituencies telling them to observe it. Yeah, and it's powerful. And I've watched, I've watched leaders of my faith. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, of course, uh, Brigham Young University has a, a large place there in Israel, the Jerusalem Center, uh, where we often send young people to study and to be, not just to study and learn, but to be part of the community, to be connected to the culture and, and to learn all of those lessons. And there's there's just tremendous power in that. And it's like you said, it's it's not about tolerance anymore. Tolerance is, uh, that's old, old, old news. This is about love and, and a little bit of holy envy, I will confess to that. But so much of it is just a, a rich blessing. Every opportunity to brush up against that is confidence producing for me. And it's why I have such great confidence in the future. I can, I can get really pessimistic about our, our politics or the country being broken and all those things. I've never been more bullish though about, about the future. And it's because of rich communities, communities that are thick with tradition, things that help us remember. I think one other component that we haven't hit on confidence is this ability to remember. I think it's also what gave David confidence. When we lose our ability to remember, we're in danger of losing a, a great deal. Remembering is a critical word in our world today because we're forgetting. And if we forget our history, if we forget our principles that are the founding and the essence of who we are, if we forget those things, uh, we're losing a lot. Because a society that loses its ability to remember often ends up you know, losing a, a lot to the next generation. What we ignore or forget, our children may never know. And what our children don't know, our grandchildren will never possess. Well, that's deeply profound. And, and that, that gets right to the entire purpose of the Jewish holiday of Pesach, which is all about the entire purpose of the holiday is to remember in the most profound and actionable way. And in the Exodus story in the Bible, Moses basically says, I want to figure out how I'm going to perpetuate the Jewish people forever. How are you to perpetuate anything forever? I mean, the audacity of that conception and his solution was through education. And the craziness of that idea is that if, well, one bit of craziness is that the alphabet had barely been invented and the whole world was illiterate, but he bet the future of the Jewish people upon universal literacy. It worked. But the other crazy thing is if one generation takes off and decides we don't want to educate, perhaps because we're being persecuted, not because they don't want to in that case, but perhaps because they're being persecuted, perhaps because they don't want to in a time of plenty, for whatever reason, the whole enterprise is over, but no generation took it off. And that's the key. And that's the thing that we have to make sure no one gets a generation off. No one gets a week off. No one gets a day off uh, when it comes to that kind of remembering and that kind of learning. That is really what perpetuates it all. Now, I remember I was in Salt Lake City in 1985 around my bar mitzvah. I just remember people from LDS, from the church, just talking about 
oh, I came up, we were Jewish. It kept coming up how much they love the Jews and how much they love Judaism. That's what I remember from that trip. What is it in the Mormon faith, even going back more than the 20 years we talked about, this is 1985, and presumably that wasn't the first moment. So what is it in the Mormon faith that has led to this philo-Semitism? It really goes back uh, back in the 18, uh, 1850s. The church actually sent uh, missionaries, <laughs> sent a missionary, Orson Hyde, to Jerusalem. And he offered a prayer there. If you haven't read that prayer, I'll, I'll send it to you. Oh, wow. Please do. Yeah. It is powerful about the returning of the Jews uh, to Jerusalem uh, and to Israel. I mean, it is prophetic and profound in its nature. So there's always been this connection. And, and obviously, both groups uh, have endured their kind of persecution uh, over the years. Of course, the, the members of my faith were driven out of the United States under an extermination order that most people don't realize. Uh, the governor of Missouri had ordered the extermination of the members of the church. And I had no idea. When, when was that? Uh, so that would have been in uh, 18, early 1840s. So that's when they packed up and, and left. They had built the one of the largest cities in the country at the time. It was larger than Chicago, uh, Nauvoo, Illinois. And then under that persecution and that extermination order, they fled west. And that came out here to, to Salt Lake City. And, and in kind of an interesting confidence <laughs> moment, uh, said that, you know, this is, this is going to be not just a crossroads to the West, but a crossroads to the world, place where people will come. And, you know, doing that a thousand miles from any civilization. And actually interesting, uh, 158 years ago, they dragged a printing press across the plains to be out here in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I have a replica of it just sitting outside my office. And they started to print. The printing of the church was just extraordinary. How many copies covering international affairs and science and uh, religion and, and faith and music and all of those other things, Yeah, even back then. But it was all for this idea of light and truth, that the truth, the confidence goes forth boldly, nobly, and independent. And I still use that as my marching orders today. My, my job as the opinion editor uh, is to make sure that we are bold, that we are noble, that we elevate the conversation, and that we're independent. We're in this independent voice out here that can reflect the principles that actually inspire confidence and help people reach their full potential. Fascinating. So the LDS love for the Jewish people was, if it started in the 1850s, it was present at creation. It was basically part of who you were from the very beginning, basically a founding principle. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, it is definitely uh, part of the DNA of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, for sure. We're so fortunate to have friends like you. Now, the church has, has been around since the 1850s, but I think there are actually more Mormons in the U.S. than there are Jews. Maybe even more Mormons in the world than there are Jews. There, there's about 16 million. Yeah, so there are more Mormons than there are Jews in the world. <laughs> I've had the opportunity over the last several years uh, to travel uh, with the, the prophet and president of the church, Russell M. Nelson, who is 96 years old, by the way. God bless him. Wow. Prior to the pandemic was just logging more miles than uh, you just can't believe. He's just an extraordinary uh, man at 96. We crisscrossed the planet meeting with members uh, all over the world. More, There are more members of the church outside of the United States for a, a faith that began really in 1820. But he uh, he travels and you know meets with uh, leaders of nations, but more importantly, to watch him uh, with individuals. Uh, you talk about a man. This is this was a man who, by the way, was a world-renowned heart surgeon before he was called to the ministry. He was one of the very first. In fact, when he started medical school, in his textbook, it said that anyone who touched the human heart would be run out of the profession. And he worked together with teams around the country and around the world. He was really a pioneer in open heart surgery. 
here's just a really interesting antidote. You want to talk about confidence and an abundance mentality. He was interviewed one time and he would talk about researchers uh, and innovators would do some things. And then he said about every 30 or 40 days, they would get together, get on a conference call with other teams around the country and other medical schools who were also trying to pioneer things in open heart surgery and share everything they had learned. And the, the interviewer asked him, said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're competing for dollars, for funding, for notoriety and recognition, and you're sharing everything you learned basically with your competitors. And he just looked at him incredulously and said, oh, we weren't competing with them. We weren't competing with death. With the angel of death, exactly. And disease. So that's kind of his mentality. So here he was, this world-renowned heart surgeon, and then received a call with the ministry and literally walked away. He performed only one surgery after uh, he was called to be an apostle in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that surgery came by request of the Chinese government. They had a beloved opera singer who was really a national treasure in China, and he flew and uh, performed. That was his very last heart surgery. And so this is an extraordinary man with an extraordinary soul, but with a confidence in people, uh, his ability to transmit that confidence and to have people feel like, wow, he's talking to me today is just absolutely extraordinary. Wow. What, what an extraordinary man. I mean, I, I grew up a half mile from the Mormon church and it was just the nicest people in the world went there. And I remember I used to, when I moved back to New York right after law school, I used to play basketball all the time at the church right near Columbus Circle. And I remember, so we play like three, four or five games. After every game, we mopped the floor clean the floor. Like that was kind of the rule in the church is like after every, not after every five games, after every game, but the respect that the LDS people I was playing with had for their church was so much that they cleaned up, they mopped the floor after every game. That was just the mentality they had about their church is the respect they had for their church was after every game. I mean, it was, it was, I'll never forget it. Yeah. And that kind of respect leads to remembrance of the things that, that really matter. And whether it's a basketball game or how you take care of a chapel. Still today, you should know that it's uh, there are not uh, hired people that take care of the churches, the local congregations, the local members do that cleaning before and after meetings and events. And uh, it's very much part of that same connective tissue. Of we're all in this together. Nobody's better than anyone else. And uh, together, we'll march it all forward. And I remember it was, this may have changed now with security, but it was always open. This is in 98, 99. Like you could just... You know, anyone could, I'm sure that's changed now, right? But anyone could walk in. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. It was just open. We'd just walk in and play all morning and clean the floors after each game. Um, you know, the fact that they were, we were going to sweat on it in five minutes didn't matter. It's like, you respect the institution, you clean it up now. And if you sweat it in five minutes, great. Clean it up after the next game. It was just a... Yeah, and imagine that kind of principle today of just, you know, clean up your own mess. You know, imagine if every country would just take that on. Just clean up your own mess, you know, respect what you used and uh, leave it a little better maybe than you found it. Right. And get in the habit of doing it. Yeah, that's right. And create a habit of doing it. And then so if you clean up after every game, you'll just clean up. Yeah, that's right. And it's so it's so amazing how it's those small and simple things that really bring it about. Uh, And again, kind of bring it full circle back to David's confidence. It is in those small and simple things. He had the greatest confidence. I learned this. I was a missionary uh, for the church in Japan as a young man, spent two years in Japan. And one of the greatest lessons I learned was not from a member of the church, but was from an old Buddhist man that I came in contact with. His name was Mr. Yamaguchi. He was uh, 94 years old. 
And we had a great talk. I've, I've always been fascinated with people and human development and success. We had this great long chat and uh, I, we were getting ready to leave, putting my shoes on in the entranceway and he stops me and he says, hey, boy, all these principles we talked about are true. These are good principles. They'll make you happy and successful and confident and all of those things. He said, but there's one more principle you got to remember. And he said, you have to promise me you will remember this and not forget it. And I said, absolutely, I, I commit. So Mr. Yamaguchi said to me, and the interpretation of that, that took me a while to figure it out, is really simple. It's elephants don't bite, but fleas do. Elephants don't bite, but fleas do. So think about that and your source of confidence. The big things in life tend to take care of themselves, but it's the little things that either hold us back or propel us forward. Uh, look at the Olympic Games. It's always fraction of a point, hundredth of a second, width of a bike tire, length of a skate that makes the difference between being the gold medal champion and someone who just participated. The same is so true in our spiritual lives, in our community lives. It's the little things, it's those little fleas that are either going to hold us back or propel us forward to the kind of confidence uh, that's going to lead us where we really want to go. Beautiful. Well, well, boy, I think that's a perfect segue to... Uh the concluding question of the rabbi's husband, which always goes from one text, a sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He says in the book, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then became a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown-up person. So Boyd, in all of your years as such a leader in the world of letters, in the world of opinion, and in politics, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? The first is that there is great good to be had in every person. There is a resilience to humanity that is extraordinary. We're seeing that in the midst of this pandemic. People are resilient, and that gives me great hope. And that even in our brokenness, we're all broken. That's probably the other thing I, I've definitely learned. We're, we're all broken. We're all broken a little bit differently, but we can become stronger in our broken places as we treat each other differently. As you talked about that uh, lighting of the menorah and that candle whose job is to share that light. I have great confidence in that. I, I, I learned that from my dad who showed that if you want to get the best out of people, you got to see the best in people. That endings matter. Uh, is another really important thing. Endings just matter in our lives. And, and too often we skip past them and we miss the meaning. So we lose the memory and that undermines our confidence and our ability to sustain it. So that's probably more than two. I'm probably getting more than, uh, than I bargained for. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. Well, boy, thank you for such a fascinating conversation on so many levels stemming from this uh, incredible passage in Samuel that I've never focused on to uh, such wisdom from your father. What a great conversation. And thank you for coming on The Rabbi's Husband. Oh, my pleasure, Mark. I appreciate what you do and especially how you do it. It matters and it really makes a difference. So grateful to be with you. Well, thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for The Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatsala and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. 
You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.